Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, a podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexity of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. This week's guest is Eric Asadurian. Eric is a die-hard environmental activist who worked at the World Watch Institute for years, uh, becoming a senior research fellow into everything sustainable. And Eric joined me to discuss Guyanism. Guyanism is a spiritual movement, let's say, that Eric is driving uh, around the world because he believes that faith could be a solution to the, the climate crisis and the social crisis and all of the other crises that we face. He says that we don't have a relationship with the natural world, we don't have a relationship with communities, um, and therefore there needs to be some kind of spiritual framework with which to engender and nurture a, a new relationship to, to, to living. Now, I'm, I'm all actually, I'm all for faith as a necessary and beautiful part of life. I'm extremely skeptical of organized religion and this seems to fall somewhere in between. And Eric's brilliant for everything that I wanted to push him on. He was extremely conscientious, extremely thoughtful and did his best to, to answer my questions um, and has since gone away and thought about these questions as well. He wrote a really interesting blog recently based on one of the questions I asked him that, you know, is this not just sort of vegan Bali influencer culture that's only available for privileged white people? And that's also actually the topic of the bonus episode that is out this week on this interview. For anyone that's not aware, I'm currently releasing, it's just been the past few weeks, bonus episodes on patreon.com. So you can go and find my, you know, a little snippet of my thoughts and analysis on each interview over there. Go to planetcritical.com for that link. Anyway, there's a lot to learn in this episode. There's a lot to think about it. And I really hope you enjoy it. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you love the episode, do consider taking out a paid subscription over at planetcritical.com. Or you can also support it on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash planetcritical. And a huge thank you to everyone who's already supporting the project. I am so excited to speak to you. Oh, thank you. So excited. Having a, a form of religion or spirituality or myth to kind of lead humanity into the future has been something uh, my friend and I James Cusson have been discussing for years and years and years and years and years. And then when you were platformed and I went on and I started reading about Guyanism, I was like, oh my God, could this be it? Like, is this the thing that we've been thinking about? And yeah, I'm just thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you for making time for me. Well, of course it was, uh, you know, when I was looking through your website, I was impressed with how many, you know, great thinkers you've been interviewing and, you know, some of them I've been lucky to connect with or they've written for World Watch over the years, so I've gotten to know them. And then there were some that I hadn't heard of, like this uh, Russian uh, forestry expert. I keep quoting her in some of the essays. I'm not sure if you've seen that, but but it was really such a wonderful uh, conversation. I'm humbled, humbled every week, every time I get to speak to all of you fantastic people and the incredible research or the daring conversations um, that people are engaging in. I'm just, I'm just a wee aggregate and I'm really, I'm really thrilled <laughs> to be so. 
don't ever knock being an aggregator, right? I mean, I, that's that's my that's where I come from. You know, right. I, I was a synthesizer essentially. You know, I'm not a thinker as much as a synthesizer. Right? That's that was World Watch's kind of brand. That was their their mode. They would take all the kind of deep data uh, in the sustainability community, marry that with stories and journal articles and um, and on the ground reports and and weave that together in a in a more uh, kind of in, engaging way of talking about the sustainability crisis and the solutions. Uh, so that's really, I mean, I think mm-hmm. there is a really that's a really important niche that uh, is under undervalued in our in our culture. So tell us a little bit more about World Watch then and what it what it means to be a synthesizer then and why that, why you were attracted um, to do that kind of work. Attracted makes it sound like I was much more conscious about my flow of life. (laughs) Uh, I was actually a psychology and religion uh, major in college. And uh, that brought me to uh, do some moral development and psychology research in India, which revealed for the first time uh, the sustainability crisis in full form rather than Mm -hmm. in our invisible form in the United States where garbage magically disappears and the effects of consumerism is pretty well hidden. Uh, And that shifted my studies completely to sustainability, which wasn't even a word I knew in uh, college. Uh, And then became an environmental organizer and felt like I didn't know what I was organizing for because I didn't really have mm. knowledge and background. So joined Worldwatch as a, a lowly research intern back in 2001, a month before 9-11 actually, which shifted even the sustainability landscape. Uh, but then really found a home there because uh, I was given a lot of freedom when I suggested different frames of how to tackle sustainability. Uh, nobody questioned it. I mean, there was pushback, but when I wanted to write about consumerism as a cultural pattern and how we need to shift that in order to uh, really address mm. the sustainability crisis, uh, I was able to, and, and that became State of the World 2010 and, and really the foundation of a lot of my work uh, where that brought me to talk about economic degrowth. It led to trying to create a reality TV show to get mm. millennial Americans to move back in with their parents to yard farm uh, and step out of the mm. consumer economy uh, <laughs> and on and on. Uh, so, so it was a real, it ended up being a, a home uh, that gave me a lot of freedom to look deeply at how to really tackle the sustainability crisis. Sounds like a modern um, philosophical journal, really. Cause I think when we think about philosophy, oh, okay, I say we, when I think about philosophy, and I think of like the, the peaks of philosophy throughout history. It's always been when also the the economy and civilization is going through a massive upsurge as well. And there's freedom that's um, given by having access to such resources. Think of the Greeks. You think of, you know, the French postmodernists the, after the World War II, the, the boom. And philosophy today, coming from a philosophy background at university, it doesn't really seem to be tackling any of the real world issues as if it's kind of, gotten itself stuck in this um oh what's the correct phrase like metaphysical niche Mm. rather than you know being aware of the physical issues that there are so it sounds like what you were doing at world watch was kind of providing 
a philosophy uh, to live by, or at least one that was trying to access the, the general public and make things accessible to the general public? To some extent, it's it's a good, I mean, I'm flattered that you would suggest that, although I think it was, you know, we were constrained with the mode or, or the culture of the organization, which was very much, we need facts, we need stories, we need to make it engaging. So I remember actually as an editor of several state of the worlds of ripping apart you know, philosophical articles because they just wouldn't fit into our model. And I would, yeah. you know, I wasn't really free to, I mean, I, the kind of the, the worst story of that was when Sergei Latouche, you know, the kind of the father of degrowth offered to write a chapter and it was so philosophical that it ended up getting reduced into a box, which I'm embarrassed about now. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I mean, it just wouldn't fit into our forum. So, so I think we did do that. Although I think there are other philosophers, um, Peter Singer, for example, comes to mind, who has really grappled with, you know, eating meat and, and, and charity and, and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. We could, we could find a better way within the sustainability community to enable more deep philosophy. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's a bit of where this work in, in Guyanism came from too. I mean, Arna Nass in the 1970s was trying to create an, a deep ecology, a, a philosophy that would really grapple with, with the, our real relationship with the earth rather than this shallow environmentalism of saving place X or fighting power plant Y. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, I think for me, did start to kind of take root in my own thinking, which I think really it was only after World Watch that I was free to to write fully like an eco philosopher. Is that is that how you would identify now as an eco philosopher? That's too. I, I don't think I could say that <laughs> with a straight face, right? I mean, that sounds very arrogant. Um, mm. Although, I mean, I you know, if you look at the definition of philosophy and all that, everybody can be a philosopher. And, but I'm certainly not credentialed. So there's, I guess, a little bit of a resistance internally to say I'm an eco-philosopher. But, but I mean, I guess if, if experience makes you something, then sure, I would be an eco-philosopher. You know, a sustainability thinker is what kind of naturally fits hmm. when I'm explaining it. But that's just as arrogant, I guess, now that I say it out loud. So <laughs> what's the difference? Um, so, you know, I'm just trying to grapple like everybody else is with this moment of crisis that mm. we are in. I mean, we're in a state of ecological collapse driven by our culture of consumerism com multiplied by our huge population and our technologies and our growth obsession and all those other things. Um, and, and those are leading to some really scary times ahead. And, and this is the latest attempt to, to make sense of it all and offer something healthy to kind of navigate it. Right, so let's get into it then. Um, and I can rephrase the question, what is mm. your eco-philosophy? Mm. What, what is Guyanism? So if I had to kind of summarize it at the very simplest, just a simple recognition that we are part of the earth and utterly dependent on it. I mean, that's as simple as it gets, right? I mean, there can be layers and layers upon that. But I mean, if you go back to the roots of, you know, there's two major influences on it. And that's what, what I mentioned already, Arna Nass and deep ecology, just understanding that we have an opportunity to create a deeper relationship 
uh, with with the planet. Um, you know, and that can stem from all different ways. You know, being engaged with nature, connecting with nature as a child, um, and all that. But then the other piece that I don't think NAS had at that time was it was Lovelock's work on on the Gaia theory and just recognizing that the Earth is a living system, right? And that doesn't need to get mystical. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I think lots of people go there. I don't as much. This is a very scientifically rooted philosophy slash faith, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like early you know, Christian- Christianity and, and uh, Islam were too, before it kind of went off in a different direction. They were uh, major drivers of scientific revolution. Uh, and that, so that faith and relig- uh, science, while typically directly at odds today, doesn't have to be that way. So what I'm saying is, I mean, Gaia theory is really this understanding that the earth is a living system. And once we recognize that, and once we recognize we're part of that, and even more importantly, we're completely dependent on it, then it changes pretty much everything, right? I mean, we can't keep consuming and producing emissions and living like we're living uh, with any with any doubt that we're not leading to our own demise. Uh, and so it opens up this deeper conversation of, okay, how do we live today in a state of, of collapse and overshoot? And how do we, how, what's the opportunity to shift that relationship? Why do you think um, developing a philosophy or a faith will provide people with a different framework when, you know, science is saying, hey, we, you can't have infinite resources on a finite planet. Um, I think instinctually on some level as well, there's an awareness of like the complete cognitive dissonance of being disconnected from the reality of our situation. Like what is it about stories or philosophy that you think grabs kind of the, the human attention so much? And why do you think it could lead us out of this crisis? That That's two questions. The second one, <laughs> let me tackle that first, because I don't think we're coming out of this crisis that, mm. uh, you know, I, so the first issue is with sustainability right now, right, is that we think we've confused it with the renewable green economy kind of yeah. nonsense. Uh, we're not going to grow our way in a green way out of this crisis. Mm. If we truly are going to shift and save ourselves, um, meaning you know, prevent massive suffering and a huge die-off. That means a massive stage of degrowth, which truthfully, I don't think, I don't, I don't see any scenario where we actively choose that. Yeah. It's, it's sad to say that because that was most of my career was trying to advocate for that. But it's just very hard to see that coming through. Just sorry to interrupt, but quickly, yeah. maybe for somebody that hasn't, um, doesn't know much about this, could you summarize degrowth very briefly, what that would look like? Briefly, um, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, degrowth just means that, right? We intentionally stop growing our economies, especially in overdeveloped countries like the United States. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean in the, the lowest developed countries, which are you know suffering from poverty. There is space there if countries like the U.S. and you know Europe and all that choose to reduce growth, and that's scary because here we are always talking about you know inflation and recession and and all that. But it doesn't mean that you can't have a really good quality of life. In fact, I mean, in State of the World 2013, we had a chapter on Cuba, uh, which mm-hmm. was controversial. But I mean, if you really look at it, they 
you know, the Cubans, ignoring all the dictor dictatorial stuff, I mean, they live at a, a almost an equal level of quality of life in many ways as the U.S. Lower infant mortality rates, lower maternal mortality rates, better health, better education. Um, they just don't have stuff. Mm. So really a degrowth model that is real would be a exchange of lots more public goods, healthcare, public transit, walkable communities, public libraries, in exchange for all the privatized stuff that we have. Uh, and it would, it obviously will take a huge getting used to, um, but if we don't choose it, then the alternative is not business as usual. The eternal, the alternative is collapse, mm. right? So then we'll not have those privatized goods either, but we also won't have the resources to develop public goods at that point. So we'll just live in a really worsened state, which will also feed into all the political unrest and the fundamentalism and all the other stuff that's a natural outgrowth of angry people. So, so degrowth is, is a key piece. Um, but now I've lost the original question <laughs> in the, in the process of that. I think it was, um, why are people attracted to, why a philosophy, why develop a philosophy to get people right. out of this? And why do you think people are attracted to, to, to stories to lead them out of the crisis? Right. Thank you. Yeah. Instead of science. And, and I was just reading a few days ago, an interview in the New York times uh, with Catherine Hayhoe, who's a evangelical climate scientist and, and actually would make a good guest if you have not thought of her, um, but she, uh, you know, she grapples with that all the time, but makes it very clear. I mean, we are an emotional species, right? Uh, you know, I don't think we're mostly rational. Um, so there, uh, just for that reason alone, storytelling and, and you know, a non-cognitive-based way of grappling with things is, is really important. Although that's not why I, you know, started cultivating this. It was really for, for multiple reasons. One... If, you know, one of the last pieces I wrote for, for World Watch uh, was, uh, was this understanding of just a, a looking at the failures of environmentalism to be successful and looking at other philosophies throughout time uh, and social movements. And, and really the most effective ones are missionary religions, right? Those philosophies that are actively reaching out to others, providing uh, community, providing um, assistance in times of need and all of that. And, and you know, this was the kind of the founding point of, of Guyanism with recognizing that we need a, a deeper way of organizing environmentalism. But then after that, you know, these practices and, and the community started to develop around these ideas, right? So meditation, uh, especially outdoor meditation, forest meditation, nature meditation, became a really uh, fundamental piece of, of Guyanism, right? So I, I started meditating as part of this. And, um, and now, you know, the goal every day is to meditate at morning, noon, and, and the evening, not for long, but just outside and, and re-ground myself. And, and the more I've read about meditation, you know, it's, it's not something you have to believe in. Uh, one kind of neuroscientist said, it's something you practice, right? Yeah. So it doesn't have to be mystical or magical and, and yeah. Buddhism certainly doesn't have a monopoly on it, uh, yeah. even though they have been the, the beautiful leaders of, of kind of learning it and, and figuring it out. Uh, but especially in this time of crisis where things are changing so rapidly, having that mental grounding ability that meditation offers and provides 
is essential and is only going to get more essential as more fires happen and more floods happen and, mm. and governments fail and can't provide um, the assistance that we expect from them. Mm. So, so, you know, over time, there is, there are other ways non-cognitive to start um, preparing oneself, right? So there's meditation. Fasting is, a, is, is actually has been, become a piece of this following the moons. Actually, so so uh, new moon and, and full moon, we have a fast, and and the idea behind that is twofold. One, I mean, living in a consumer society, we typically eat too much. You know, we're we're surrounded by by too many op opportunities to to consume, and fasting is a good opportunity to kind of step back from that cycle. Uh, but so few of us, between the distraction with entertainment between the, the light pollution, so few of us look up any longer and, and don't see the moon. We, I mean, I don't know, or didn't know what cycle of the moon it was anymore until I started this fast. And now I'm actually more attuned to, to the earth cycles again. Same with, with the, the meditation and all of that. Uh, so, so there's opportunities, non-intellectualizing, to just connect to the earth on a regular day-to-day -day cycle, on the kind of monthly cycle, on the annual cycle, following the solstices and the equinoxes and that kind of thing. So yeah, so that's, I think, a little bit of a, a kind of a taste. Let, let's get into a little bit because a lot of that sounds very um, vegan Bali Instagram yeah. influencer culture as well, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I guess you're right, but I well, hope it, not. I mean, I think... I think that there is, you know, I ascribe to Jung's uh, theory of the collective um, subconscious, unconscious, mm -hmm. one of them, um, and think that we do see these sort of waves in populations of people as they, they try to achieve or reach for something that they in, on, intuitively on some level know that they need. Um, however, I think that how that culture of like that desire to re reconnect with the earth because we've become so disconnected and how that's manifested now as vegan Bali Instagram influencer culture and also the role of religion in arriving to where we are today like I think mm. we should discuss that as well when you're proposing that it could be a faith-based um not solution because there is no one solution but um a faith-based weapon or arm to steer through, you know, the, the the current crisis and the the upcoming inevitable crises. So, I mean, how is it that, like, with that in mind, the lens in mind of the fact that it was a monotheistic and heaven-based, otherworldly-based um, religions that kind of rose man up to this idolized state? Um, withdrew any natural connections from the earth, completely abandoned any form of paganism and saw it as this animalistic um, culture. With that in mind, what could be the problems of, of a faith-based um, solution? Well, I think, I think I want to flip that because there's opportunities is what you're describing. So this is not God-centric. This is mm. earth-centric. Right, it's reconnecting to the earth. It, when I describe what you're right, as as I describe those different practices, it could certainly sound um, trendy or fad, <laughs> fatty, but it's it's not in the sense that 
I mean, you know, meditation is trendy now, but it's been trendy for 2,500 years. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah. so, and, and veganism is actually not part of this because when systems break down and refrigerators are no longer available, we will be eating meat again because mm. livestock are refrigerators, right? I mean, it's, it's a cruel way of saying it. I don't mean it that way. They're, they're beautiful living animals and we need to give gratitude when we kill an animal for their uh, meat, uh, but, or, or, or their hide or whatever. But we also have to recognize that we are part of a, a living life cycle, right? And so um, when we decide not to use animal products and instead use polyester fleece, and that fleece is washing away bit by bit into the ocean every time we wash it and killing fish, that's a total disconnect. So mm. we need to first and foremost recognize ourselves as part of a living system and stop using uh, materials that are killing the earth and instead reintegrate ourselves into that earth system. But I think having a philosophy that understands that intuitively and inherently, and more importantly, has a community that reinforces that. A lot of our community practices are pedagogical, right? We have a monthly book club and talking about different aspects of, of the living earth or of environmentalism or, or what have you. We have a, a monthly conversation that talks more about the specifics about, uh, about the Gaian way. Um, you know, so there's opportunities, but, but most importantly, which hasn't come up yet, and I'll just share it, is that you know, all religions have to be grounded locally, right? If you don't have some sort of local community, when the internet fails along with everything else, this will go poof, right? Mm. So, you know, one of the big practices that we're trying to cultivate are these local Gaian guilds, right? Where you come together for a weekly forest meditation. Uh, you ideally support each other in times of need and celebration. Uh, there's opportunities to, uh, for in, in, to be intentionally provocative, indoctrinate children, right? Uh, you know, as, as all religions do, I mean, we've had our first, uh, you know, set of kids at a, at a, one of our local Gaian guild, um, forest meditations this last month where we had five kids and they off, they went into the forest to play, right? Which is, which is, is, is how I see Sunday school in the ideal form, not, not, you know, teaching old, uh, saint, and, and that kind of thing, but actually connecting to the earth. Mm. Uh, so there's opportunities to uh, reconnect people in, in real ways to a living earth and then get them um, understanding their dependence on it. Uh, yes, if, if the opposite is, is what we're talking about, you know, connecting to God, you know, telling people that it's okay that creation dies because we'll go off to heaven, I agree. That's really dangerous. And so, I mean, the afterlife in, in Gaianism is very simple. We return to the earth uh, and make new life, sure, but without consciousness. There's no reincarnation. There's no afterlife. But we do, we are always part of the earth. Uh, mm -hmm. Right now, we are in our brief conscious stage, and then we go back into the elements and, you know, we'll be new life in a, another way, but not in any conscious way. But this is our moment to to thrive and to do something good for the earth. Uh, you know, to heal it, to um, protect it, to to celebrate um, our connection to it, and and that's not even the right word. It's not an it. It's it's Gaia. It's all living being. Uh, um, you know, so so I, I don't know if that answers your question. That's a it's a tough question you're asking, but I mean, I, I hope that <laughs> got to it. 
Um, kind of. Um, I would I would counter it with. It seems to me that uh, religion goes wrong, becomes fundamental when it becomes a series of practices and one is not taught the moral or the message or the reasoning mm. behind it, you know. Um, that's why Christmas has become, you know, just a crazy um, consumerist holiday. Same with Eid. You know, it, it was all meant to be about fasting and not eating much in remembrance of those who have very little and now it's a feast, you know, the moment the sun goes down. Mm -hmm. You know, still there's a counter of like, how do you communicate those messages to everyone? How do you ensure that the right message is being spread constantly? Because, I mean, I think my um, own personal belief would be you teach critical thinking, you teach people how mm -hmm. to think. And then there has to be that element of autonomy and independence you know, these things, especially in democratic countries, these things that we've become used to and I think are helpful. To me, it seems that teaching people to think critically, to be able to input information, synthesize, aggregate, um, come to their own conclusions would be as beneficial as, as prescribing them um, or indoctrinating them into a certain way. And so I wonder, is there also an element of that you think like we've kind of run out of time to do it in that gradual um, evolutionary manner? Is that why it's important to indoctrinate at this point as well? I shouldn't have used the word indoctrinate. I know. I, certainly <laughs> <didn't>. <laughs> I, I meant in the pure way that... Introducing? You know, it, 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 no, I, I mean, it, all children are exposed to certain ideas and they mm. just take it for granted, right? I mean, that's that's the beauty of culture, right? And that's, mm. you know, again, the, the work at World Watch was all about recognizing that, you know, borrowing from Dana Meadows and her understandings of the levers of change, the most powerful lever is changing the paradigm, right? So if the paradigm of culture today is consumerism, propped up by a half a trillion dollars a year of advertising, PR, lobbying, you know, huge amounts of expenditures, which breaks down this whole idea that critical thinking works, right? Because my critical thinking, after 20 years of, of sustainability studies, still can't compete with, you know, the advertising, with the, the lock-in where I am in a car-based society, right? I can't abandon a lot of the practices. Uh, and, you know, especially once family is involved, right, where... You know, if I want to sustain my relationship with my wife, I have to turn on the heat in the winter, right? Even, <laughs> even though it's natural gas-based, right? So, uh, you know, that'll change when collapse happens and there is no natural gas. But right now, since it's available, uh, you know, domestic tranquility demands. So, so, I mean, critical thinking can only go so far. And I've advocated it for forever. I mean, the state of the world 2017 was all about what education should look like mm. for uh, this changing planet, right? How do we make children into sustain sustainability leaders and resilience leaders mm -hmm. so that they can help their communities to survive as, as systems break down? Uh, and, you know, of course, there's a chapter on critical thinking, systems thinking, moral education, um, and on and on. Uh, but I, and I don't think there's anything in Gaian practices that conflict with critical thinking, right? I mean, it's, to be fair, this is a very small community right now. It's people who have uh, discovered the Gaian website that have kind of always self-identified as Gaians, some friends from World Watch and, and 
others that have kind of come to this and everybody has very, I mean, it's a smorgasbord of views already, mm. right? I mean, it's, there's no kind of, um, deep, okay, this is what this is. And if you don't accept this, you have to go away. It's mm. not, it's not cult-like or anything like that. It's a, if anything, it's the other extreme where it's too, uh, open and people <laughs> come and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, share their ideas and, and which, I mean, which hinders the growth in the sense that it's, it's, um, you know, we're not prescribing, uh, and, mm. and, and, you know, demanding enough, perhaps that, that would be my, you know, self-criticism. Um, but I think the point is, is, you know, it's, it's trying to start a conversation. I certainly do not think that I've been, you know, told on high or Gaia down low has told me what this is. If anything, I'm just, you know, sharing the common sense of, of what has yeah. come from philosophers in the past and just recognizing that if we don't make changes, this is what's coming. Uh, having a community who understands this will help you to get through it. Uh, in the longer term, the hope is, I mean, this is my big dream, is that, you know, the collapse is not the end. Uh, unless we really, really collapse and humans go extinct, uh, most likely it won't be that extreme and we'll, you know, shrink down our population. And the worst case scenario is that we then regrow, reconquer, redominate in new ways, um, you, know, you know, like a bad science fiction story, right? I mean, yeah. I, I think of Kennical of Leibowitz all the time because, you know, after the nuclear holocaust there, you know, it took, it took a thousand years, but then another um, civilization came and made another nuclear bomb and blew up themselves up again, yeah. right? And I, I could see our tendency of doing that because of the, the dominant cultural paradigms right now, the dominant fakes, all that. But if we could recognize and cultivate a regenerative relationship with the earth now, sow the seeds now, so that as things fall apart, we don't turn, we meaning not everyone turns to fundamentalist uh, beliefs, but instead turns to a recognition that, whoops, we did this to ourselves. The earth, um, you know, is, is welcoming, but is also, um, you know, doesn't take shit, if, if I can say it that way. And if we don't kind of return to the fold, uh, we're just going to keep doing this to ourselves. You know, it, I think it'll be easy to demonize the earth as things are falling apart. And that's going to open up the opportunity for some to profit on geoengineering, on, on creating seawalls and all this other mm -hmm. hard technology that's going to hurt the earth and ourselves in the long term even more. So if we can't, sh if we can shift that conversation away from that and recognizing we're part of the earth and we need to, you know, start focusing on re regenerate regenerative um, pathways, that will be a lot better in the long term. You see that kind of language at the moment more and more, don't we? That, yeah. um, you know, the earth is angry or she's getting her own back or she's sick of us, you know, she's trying to get rid of us. And it's, it's, it's such an interesting thing to witness because there's at once a recognition of a part of the reality, which is that we are having an impact. We are messing with living systems and also a huge anthropomorphism and simplification of the actual issue, which is, again, it's still us. <laughs> it's not yeah. that she's angry and she's trying to get rid of us. It's, that she, you know, the earth systems are responding to how we're meddling with them. Exactly. And we just need to stop meddling with them. <laughs> We're not yeah. victim of our own 
I mean, we are a victim of our own consequences because arguably, you know, there's billions of people in the world that are living sustainably and who will be the first victims of climate change, if not already are. Right. Um, but for there's a huge number of the rest of us that, um, you know, we're just witnessing the consequences of our own actions. Yeah, and, and it's, but we don't, but nobody's telling us that, right? I mean, I mean, you know that and I know that, um, but most people can't even experience the consequences of their own actions of not wearing masks and not getting vaccinated, right? Because there's emotional barriers uh, and there's a community of people saying otherwise to them, right? So, you know, that's again, where a community of practice comes in uh, and, and, you know, this kind of sharing of, of a different reality um, is, is, is valuable. Uh, and, and, I th and that used to be the church's role um, you know, and, and even that, going back to that interview I mentioned, I mean, you, when, when you only have an hour of church a week, uh, you know, that can't compete with the, the 20 hours that you spend on, uh, on Facebook and the 10 hours uh, of news and, and whatever. So, so the dominant drivers of our, of our realities are, are the media and, and our, you know, social networks. And that's, that's teaching us something very different than what you just described. Mm. That's an interesting point. I mean, is it teaching us anything? Uh, I, <laughs> you know, it's true. I mean, it's like I, if you if you look at how the alg and what we know about algorithms, this is fact, and things have been leaked about algorithms. I mean, it's not um some big. Uh, mastermind conspiracy to right. um, stupefy a population. It's simply that it notices that if something's a little bit more extreme than the last thing, but it, it's on a certain line, there's a curve, like you'll click on it, you know? So I don't think it's, uh, media isn't teaching us anything. Media is a reflection of the things that we already know, the things that we're interested in. Like to me, I take huge, um, what's the word, gumption? Um, <laughs> it annoys me when people talk about the media, capital T, capital M, because mm. I'm a journalist. It's like, what? what is the media? What is it? It's just us. It's all us in the same way that, you know, populations get uh, many populations in democratic countries, not in non-democratic countries. You know, we get the leaders that we deserve. They're a reflection of the culture at the time. They're a reflection of the uh, the zeitgeist. It, it It's an interesting, I mean, so I get what you're saying. And I'd like to agree with you, but I mean, how about, can I put the corporate media? I, I, I'm not, no. I'm not one who's at, no, but I'm not advocating for conspiracy. Right. But, but when, you know, in the back rooms of, of, I hate to pick on Fox news, but that's the, you know, the, the one that's always big, like there is a recognition that certain voices attract certain people to keep coming. And, and so, and then that kind of perpetuates that, that reverberation of a certain worldview uh, there was a, a great Yale re researcher who kind of made the wonderful point about why why people don't believe in climate change, and it's community based at one level, right? So if I go to a church where everybody doesn't believe in climate change, and I say, "Hey guys, this is of course mm -hmm. it's real," and then they ostracize me, and I have no community anymore because they think I'm a a liberal, you know, crazy guy or has been polluted or, or whatever, then my community goes and. So That's I've lost point. something tangible in the real and in the current because of, in, in, instead of, you know, focusing on the risk, who cares about a risk a hundred years from now or 20 years from now or 10 years yeah. or if I'm suddenly isolated from my own community, that yeah. gives me meaning. 
So I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say any of it. I'm not trying to communicate that it's um, some sort of conspiracy, although the $500 billion of advertising a year is not conspiratorial, but the goal is to sell stuff, right? Stuff yeah. that is mostly destroying the planet uh, and yeah. is unnecessary at one level or another. Um, even though we, we fully believe it is necessary at this point, we've kind of become entitled to it and need it. Uh, so the, you know, and then that perpetuates lots of other, yeah. you know, kind of side effects, right? The, the lobbying, uh, the, the money-based, uh, political system that, you know, we don't want these politicians necessarily, but they're the ones who are really good with getting money from corporations, from, from, you know, donors, whatever. So there is a whole deeper systemic um, inertia or, or momentum that has locked us into this path. And I'm not really sure anymore how to get out. <laughs> I think I think the word that you used there, which is so key, is entitlement and inertia. Um, because if you look at other parts of the world that are undemocratic, um, are living with huge poverty, huge visible corruption as well. The way that they have to organize, it's life or death every day. They're organizing for their political freedoms um, and they, they get on with it. There's a huge part of the population that gets on with it. There's a huge part of the population that is so precarious, they can't think about that. Um, and then you look at like, certainly UK, Europe, USA, the amount of information that we have at our fingertips, the amount of capital that we have at our fingertips, especially in like, you know, in the environmental movement or in media or in academia or whatever, we have every opportunity to actually get on with it. But we've become so entitled um, and so numbed in many ways um, to our own privilege that like, I don't know, we seem to think that we seem to think that we are not causing the things around us when we are. It's it's us, you know. Um, I personally, I think, and this is you know to do with my work. Like there are huge geopolitical things happening, which are to do with um, very very scary people that have very very scary friends and are making very very bad decisions that are going to impact all of us. Um, but when it comes to like culture, consumer culture. Um, or materialism or capitalism, like it's us. It's not um, some big bad guy in a room somewhere. We are doing it to ourselves. <laughs> yes, but what's interesting is this: over the summer, I edited a one point five degree lifestyles report okay, um, cool. by the Hotter Cool Institute, and and actually the head of that institute, Louis Kenji, would be another good guest if uh, you're looking for them. But, um, you know, the, the, the findings are so overwhelming in that, right? So if we actually wanted to, to stabilize emissions, how much of our lifestyles would have to change? And, and in the 10 countries they surveyed, U.S. wasn't one of them because it's just such an outlier. It didn't, you know, it wouldn't even fit into their calculations. Yeah. But even, you know, Canada, which was their biggest consumer, the, the extreme changes, right? You know, no more, pretty much, even if everybody all went vegan and stopped driving and uh, cut their home sizes in half, they would still not get to the mark, right? And, and so when, you, when that's the extreme shift that's necessary, it's so easy for people to just turn it off, right? Mm. I mean, it's just overwhelming. Mm. So 
I get why people, you know, are saying, let's get more renewables, woohoo, because that sounds like a solution and it take, gets them off the hook. Um, uh, even though that building all those renewables would completely devastate yeah. huge lands and, and burn even more fossil fuels in the yeah. creation of them. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, okay. so, I mean, some of it is, is really recognizing the limits, right? So recognize, you know, that's again, recognizing we're part of the earth and, and recognizing the limits to growth, the limits of the earth, um, mm. you know, that, that changes what is expected of us, smaller family sizes, uh, you know, uh, sacrificing, uh, I mean, that's a, you know, it's not a, a, a dirty word, right. But sacrificing meaning, you know, consuming less, traveling less. Um, living a more local life style. Um, John Michael Greer has such a great quote of, you know, collapse now and avoid the rush, right? So trying to kind of localize your, yeah. your lifestyle and, and kind of get over the, the consumer, you know, cultural pressure to go explore the world and go, you know, get this new thing and all of that. Uh, it's hard though. I, I mean, nobody's immune to that. Even you know, even those who kind of eat sustainability for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they're still, you know, following the, the same consumer ways that, that most people are. And I think, I mean, what is it that drives this? Because it's not just consumerism. It's not just capitalism. Um, there have been millennia of civilizations that have come up and kind of outdone themselves essentially and collapsed. Um, what's in us? What, what, what do you think? Cause I, I mean, I would assume that this is why as well, you're trying to create this faith-based community-based solution. What, what has driven us in this way? Because at the same token, there's other populations in the world, um, who often get kind of grouped under the term indigenous peoples. Um, who do live in balance with the earth and who are completely everything that we're talking about that, you know, seems to have taken ages to to understand and wrap our heads around just common sense to them. <laughs> common sense figured out over tens of mm. thousands of years. Mm. Uh, I mean, perhaps, you know, bringing, you know, bringing this to an indigenous perspective, um, it was more life or death, right? We didn't have, they didn't have, long supply chains. Uh, this is oversimplifying, but I mean, I, right now it's easy to not worry about, you know, the little bit of oil that's leaking out of my car. Not that it is, but it's just a <laughs> hypothetical example. Uh, that's pouring down the driveway and, and into the water here because that water goes off and sub pollutes somewhere else. Right. Mm. Uh, or, or the, or, and this is, I am guilty of this, or the microfibers that come off the fleece that I own secondhand even, but it doesn't matter. Mm. Um, that's going into the water and killing something, right? I mean, it's, we're in that globalized world uh, that we don't see the ramifications of all the damage that we do. I mean, if we, you know, I know in, in college campuses around the world, they used to have that little, uh, you know, take, put your garbage in a bag and carry it around for a week, right? Like that's the oh, kind of yeah. like the classic thing where, and it, it starts to accumulate pretty quickly and you can start to see how, you know, consumptive you are. Uh, we don't see that. It's all magically whisked away. Um, and, and, and 
And when people get obsessed with it, then they often overly focus on that instead of the bigger issues anyway, right? So it's, you know, you hear all those stories of people getting 100% of plastic out of their lives, right? But they've ended up focusing all of their life energy on that instead of lobbying or fighting or, or, or other things. So, but I think, um, you know, in, in an indigenous situation where, you know, the medicine, the food, everything was dependent directly on the environment around you, it was much easier perhaps to see and understand our dependence on the planet and that we are part of that whole system, right? I mean, if we overkill the deer, then there won't be deer next season and we're going to go hungry. Um, if we underkill them, then they're going to get diseases, you know, so, so that we actually became part of that, that living system and balance. Uh, and if we plant these types of trees and guard the soil underneath it, then they become more, they flourish, right? And we can actually deepen the soil and make for better rains in the forest and all that, right? So that was, that was gained slowly, probably over centuries. And we quickly wiped it all away. Um, I mean, in this, on this continent, you know, with the we, with the spread of uh, of a new culture, I mean, the, the colonization, the killing off through disease and through uh, mm -hmm. domination uh, of this, uh, you know, of, of these stewards, and and not to romanticize, but I mean, I think there was a, a much deeper understanding and and balance that was gained over 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 millennia. That was not part of the European way, right? That was a that was from. From ancient Roman times and before, there was a a um, em empire style kind of pathway, and that that has to go right. We can't sustain empire on a finite planet with seven, eight, sorry, eight billion people almost uh, going up to nine, maybe ten before before we shrink back down, whether we chose to or not. Mm. So. Um, to anybody listening who's concerned about this, which they probably are because they're listening, <laughs> um, what what can people do? Uh, because you've said, you know, it sounds like you really think, you know, we're heading towards a collapse. Um, I would agree. I think that something's got to give. A lot of things have got to give. The system is going to change. Uh, how we deal with that is unfortunately entirely dependent on, you know, public education and public pressure because the leaders obviously don't want to change how things are. Um, so what can people do and how can they navigate it? Well, I mean, there's so many ways and there are no ways, mm. <laughs> if that makes sense, right? So if you think too hard about it and anything that you choose will feel like it's not enough, right? I mean, I, you know, unless you're fully devoting yourself day, day in and day out to climate activism or whatever, but even that, I mean, climate change is just one of the breakdowns of the yeah. systems. Uh, so, I mean, I think for me, it's come to be a more holistic way, right? So, you know, I chose to have one child, for example, that was, um, that was not an easy choice. Uh, you know, it, again, you know, it was a much harder choice than the natural gas one, but in the mm -hmm. end, my wife came into agreement with that and for other reasons and for that, but so that's one small example, right? And and if we look at our our short lives as a whole rather than today, um, it, it gives a little bit more opportunity to think about all the different ways that we can engage, right? So 
at the end of my life, I want a green burial, right? I want a burial where I'm wrapped in a shroud and put into the ground, naturally healing Gaia through my little bits of, of matter rather than how my father died, which was to be embalmed with toxic chemicals, put into a, an expensive wooden coffin, uh, put in a plastic vault into a, a grass-laden field cemetery that is probably sprayed with pesticides even today, right? So even at the last moments of life, we have an opportunity to heal or to poison, right? And you can just say that about every day, right? How do you spend your day? Do you, you, know, do you consume, uh, you know, spontaneously and buy something on Amazon? Do you stay away from, from those consumer opportunities and, um, you know, take a little time to meditate and learn to be, you know, in your own self? Uh, do you spend time in activism? Uh, you know, in the fall, we had a little uh, conversation in the community about uh, kind of different Gaian practices. And, uh, and one of the, the Gaians presented, you know, kind of splitting it into four pieces, contemplative, right? So that's the, the meditation and fasting, that kind of thing, the community built, right? So a lot of this is a lot easier if you have a community to support you. When I, you know, say to my mom why I had one child, she doesn't really get it, right? Because she's not up this, you know, philosophy in a sense. But when I say to other self-identified guys or even environmentalists at Worldwatch, they say, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense, right? And so that makes you, that validates you enough so that you can stick with, with your ideas. Um, then there, there is active, right? If we just treat this like an internal um, kind of feelings thing, that's not enough, right? There's a, a wonderful uh, book by Derek Jensen, a, a, an animated, I mean, a, a comic book almost. Uh, I forget, the 10, top 10 ways to stay in denial. And there's a guy who's meditating uh, and saying, yes, I'm at one with the earth. And then it, you know, he's sitting on a, what looks like a chair, but you zoom out. And he's actually sitting sitting on a on a stump while like foresters are cutting down an entire forest around yeah. him, right? So you can't you can't just meditate uh, while the world is collapsing around you. You have to get active and and pick a way that feels right to you, uh, whether that's climate activism or I mean I've advocated a few times, even though it's um, a rare thing. You know, uh, Joanna Macy has advocated for uh, nuclear guardianship, just kind of recognizing that there are nuclear scar nuclear um power plants that will eventually become scars on the landscape and mm -hmm. if intent in a thousand years or even 200 years depending on how things go they could be really dangerous sites so having people kind of understand those sites and being almost wisdom keepers warning people about them uh, and obviously before that advocating for uh, you know stopping the use of nuclear power or maybe not nuclear power, but at least, you know, fighting against nuclear warheads, that, that kind of thing. There's so many different ways to, to fight, to heal Gaia. Um, and, and learn, learning is the last one, just to go through all four, right? And just kind of keep learning and, and understanding and, and connecting. And learning doesn't necessarily only need to be reading books and that kind of thing, listening to podcasts, but, you know, getting out into Gaia, you know, learning how to forage, uh, you know, learning how to make fire with a bow drill, just the kind of the traditional skills that also bring us much more close um, to, to nature and to, and to a living planet. Can I ask you a, a, a difficult question? I think so. 
Is there a certain futility in that practice? Because arguably, the peoples around the world who perhaps have this cultural, intuitive, instinctive relationship to Gaia, um, because they have been starved of development, a lot of them, or have rejected um, industrial development, um, those practices are not going to save them from rising sea levels it's not going to save them from the mass deforestation. Um, it's not going to save them from the impending uh, horrific heat waves that are going to make their homes uninhabitable. You know, the environmental movement comes under a lot of flack and has done forever for being super middle class. You know, is that kind of activism a way of self-soothing rather than attacking the issue because when you put it up against the crisis the economic energy climate crisis i mean what what can it do i think there's a couple things to pull out of that i mean the, mm. the, the activism the, there's an infinite need for activism right mm -hmm. and i think you know if depending on who's listening you know if somebody wants to fully dive in and and almost lose themselves in activism i, I mean i i wouldn't disagree with that but I also recognize most people aren't that, right? It's like the, it's the, the middle path in Buddhism versus the monk, mm. right? I mean, it's meant some people will choose the monk path and that's wonderful. And I actually wish I could do that, but I, I don't, and I honestly, I don't, I guess, because I have a family and I love my son and I love spending mm -hmm. time with my son. And I admit that I'm not that strong, I guess, at some level. Uh, but the middle path means you should do some activism, right? And some ways to fight and some focusing on, you know, mental exercises for yourself, right? I mean, meditation is about I mean, why I value it so much is, is twofold. One, it, it has helped me to turn off from the consumer impulses, right? So it has helped me in being less of a consumer, but it also has helped me to stop the ego anxiety that I think would have come without it, right? Where, I mean, you read about ego anxiety every day now, especially in young people. Um, but once you recognize that, you know, the collapse is not inevitable, but probable, um, mm -hmm. or maybe inevitable. I, I don't want to be a downer, but um, I mean, I just, the data suggests that it is. Oh yeah. Um, it's but it's the, the, the question is, you know, what we is in our control is how fast it comes and yeah. how out of control and how much we help each other in that transition. Um, but it is coming. And so, you know, finding the, the, the mental space to kind of accept that roll with that, recognize that we all, return to Gaia, right? I mean, like the, the wave that's afraid of hitting the beach, but in reality, he's part of the ocean, right? You mm. know, so, you know, kind of that, that kind of, mm. uh, perspective shift is, is very important. Uh, as far as, you know, learning skills and that kind of thing, it's for itself, right? There's a joy. In it. I actually remember learning how to, you know, start a fire with a bow drill and it took a long time to figure <laughs> it out. And when I actually got my first coal, I cried. I mean, it was ridiculous, but it was so powerful that I brought this coal into life from nothing. Um, and that really connected me at a, at a deeper level, that whole time spent, you know, in, in the woods, just learning skills. Um, I don't do it enough and I, I wish I did, but it was, did it more, but it really, it's a very different way of connecting to the earth than 
taking a hike, especially in the American way of let's get seven miles between here and there and two hours and take a water break here and take a picture here. <laughs> and then it's over. And, you know, I, they, they joked in, when I was learning skills uh, that you'll never be able to w walk through the woods again in the same way. And and probably not at the same speed. And now it's true. It's like, I'll stop and I'll look at the plan and I'll forage a little something and, and keep on going. And my wife will be rolling her eyes the whole time because, you know, she wants to go three times faster than me. <laughs> um, but so there's a real kind of beauty in finding different ways to relate to the earth. Um, that doesn't have to be about achieving something or getting to something as much as just you know, connecting in the moment. It's almost meditative in its own. And arguably that kind of philosophy, if everyone overnight could adopt that mentality, a lot of the world's problems would be healed. If everyone did it more, we wouldn't need the, the monks in the world or the, the, the people who are forced to go to extremes, you know, like the self-immolating monks, you know, who had to raise attention to the desperate inequalities and, tra and travesties. You know, yeah. Yeah, if everyone did a little bit more. That's a lovely message to end on. <laughs> <laughs> the, the immolating part or the little more? <laughs> no, uh, no I, I, think, I think it takes a lot more, though, right? That's the thing. I mean, the, the, the data, it's, we've waited so long. If, if, if we had listened to Dana Meadows in the 70s when she said the limits to growth and, and uh, Jimmy Carter's solar panels stayed on the roof and we had gone in a solar direction then, uh, when we had only you know three or four billion people on the planet, and we hadn't really destroyed so much of Earth's capital, or not even capital, Earth, the Earth, um, to to not economize it, um, you know that would have been a different scenario. But there's going to be a, a a growing pains period now, or a degrowing pains that. Um, so again, I mean, the meditation part is is accepting the limits that are coming and not getting mad about it, and not fighting. I mean, yellow vests kind of rebellion is a, is a perfect example where all these people are in France are fighting over, you know, increasing gas prices, but that's, that's a dream for me. I'd love increased gas prices in the United States, right? I mean, if they could double over a, a period of time that didn't cause a coup, um, you know, that's a, a key way of getting us back out of our cars and onto bicycles and uh, walking again and, and changing how we, we design uh, our communities. But in, in, truth that's a it's a big challenge um so we do have to do a lot more not a little more um and in part that's i mean the the, the guy in community for me is a way to force myself in a sense and, and hopefully others that force but encourage um myself to to hold myself to a higher level uh, of, of commitment and, and changes and practices so where can people find out more about guyanism uh, Guyanism.org is probably the easiest way. We have a, a weekly newsletter and a couple of events each month to connect to the community. Uh, and, uh, and there's opportunities to, to connect more. Uh, if you live in New Orleans or Connecticut or Honolulu, we do have a few local groups. Um, hopefully over time, those will, will grow. But in, in the short term, the best way is, is at Guyanism.org, uh, connecting there Excellent. Uh, my final question for you then is, who would you like to platform? You've come up with quite a few names throughout, but just yes. in case there's anybody else. <laughs> well, I certainly, though, Lewis is one and uh, Catherine Hayhoe is another. Uh, I mean, another one I've, I thought of because I 
did listen to some of your podcasts and knew you'd ask this question. <laughs> David Orr is another, um, you know, a kind of a, a father of, of environmentalism and has really worked in the recent years to kind of help save American democracy, um, you know, as a kind of a element of saving the earth. Yeah. Uh, and, and so he would be, a, I think, an interesting guest as well. Brilliant. Eric, thank you so much for making time for me today and for introducing Guyanism to my audience. I, I really appreciate it. It's really interesting. I have huge amounts of faith in it. I will mm. be subscribing to the newsletter. Um, and hopefully, you know, this is one part of the the bigger puzzle of solutions that is going to be very complex and that we all need. Thank you, Rachel. And I really appreciate you inviting me on. And uh, you're always welcome to join some of our book conversations or our, our monthly conversations. I'd love to see you there. I'll be there. Thank you, Eric. If you want to learn more about Guyanism, I've put links to it over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked the episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, though, the best way to support the project is by choosing a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. A huge thank you to the Planet Critical subscribers and supporters without whom this work simply wouldn't be possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.